The creation versus evolution argument is not about faith versus science. Neither can be proven or falsified by the scientific method. And in fact, both sides are looking at the same forensic evidence. The real question then is, which view is accurate? We're the Missouri Association for Creation. Welcome to our podcast. Good morning, afternoon, or evening from St. Louis, Missouri. I'm Marv Schaefer, president of the Missouri Association for Creation. Thank you for joining us. And once again, I'm here with Zachary Klein, who is a board member and speaker for Missouri Association for Creation. He is bringing us the second part of his conversation with creation geologist Paul Garner from the Biblical Creation Trust in the UK. Zach, take it away. Well, thank you, Marv. I'm here again with Paul Garner from Biblical Creation Trust in the UK. And Paul, last month we were discussing the ICC, the International Conference on Creationism, a very large uh, technical summit, a research conference uh, featuring scientists from all sorts of disciplines, all sorts of organizations and creation ministries, really presenting on what's cutting edge in their field and what sort of research projects they are involved in. And you were one of those. Uh, You were involved in a number of presentations at the ICC this year. Right, I was, yeah. I was involved in a couple of presentations uh, along with others. I co-authored with with others. Also, there was a panel. Uh, I took part in a panel with uh, a number of other scholars uh, where we were talking about where does the flood end in the fossil record? Where does it Mm -hmm. begin? And that was interesting too. So, yeah. Yeah, it was a busy time. It was. It was a very busy (laughs) time. Yeah, but but excellent. Uh, A lot of great information and great discussions. And uh, last month, we discussed one of your papers that you presented on the topic of testing the order of the fossil record against evolution. Mm. Today, I'm hoping we can talk about another uh, paper you presented, which has to do with something called concordance. At a high level, uh, we're talking about radiometric dating, radioisotope Mm -hmm. dating, and uh, how often these dating methods agree, which would be concordance yeah. versus when they disagree or discordance. Yes. So uh, this is something that a lot of us creationists are familiar with because there was some work done under the RATE project with ICR, and creationists have been pointing out for a while that there do seem to be some places where these dating methods contradict, even for the same sample, the same rock, we get conflicting numbers. But um, yeah. you guys took this to another level, so why don't you uh, share a little bit about this project? Yeah. So just to kind of introduce radiometric dating, radiometric dating uses the decay of naturally occurring radioactive isotopes, which are unstable. They decay to stable daughter products. And geologists use this as a kind of clock to date the Earth's rocks and minerals. And the problem for us as creationists is that these dates usually come out in the order of millions or even billions of years. Uh, And so creationists obviously have paid a lot of attention to radiometric dating and uh, they've pointed out various problems with these methods problems about the assumptions that underlie the methods you know assumptions about what were the initial conditions Uh, you know was there daughter product in the rocks and minerals to begin with which is going to skew your dates make them too old were these rocks and minerals open systems or closed systems were isotopes able to leave or enter the, the rock system Questions about constancy of decay rates. The assumption that the decay rate has always been constant, is that correct? And the rate group was a team of earth scientists, geologists, physicists, and geophysicists, and others 
who were convened by the Institute for Creation Research and the Creation Research Society. And they did a a five-year research project where they carried out a number of studies looking at various aspects of this radioisotope dating question. And one of the things that they found was that all of these assumptions can be seriously questioned by the data, and particularly this idea of constancy of decay rates. There were multiple lines of evidence that they found that seemed to point to accelerated nuclear decay in the Earth's past, maybe more than one episode of accelerated decay. So that was kind of interesting. And one of the studies that they did was that they collected radioisotope dates on 10 rock units. They were using a thing called the isochron method and Rather than just dating each rock by sort of one or even two methods, they used four methods on on each rock sample. And they were looking for patterns in the data. And what they found is that different radioisotope methods would consistently give different dates than other methods. Now, of course, you know, if if radioisotope dating works and it's giving you a, a trustworthy date for those rocks, then those different methods should agree, right? But often they they disagreed, sometimes by hundreds of millions of mm. years. And what was even more interesting was that there was a pattern. So certain radioisotope methods would give older ages, consistently older ages, than other methods. There was a kind of pecking order of dates, if you like, from the different methods on the same rock samples. And as a scientist, you know, when you see a pattern like that, when you see a trend, well, that needs explanation. And it looks as if this idea of accelerated nuclear decay could potentially explain that pattern because certain radioisotope clocks seem to be ticking at different rates than other clocks. Mm. Uh, And that's why they're giving these sort of different ages. And probably all of those ages are inflated relative to the real passage of time. Right. So that was what the rate group did. And our study kind of built on some of their work. Yeah. There was a lot of excitement around the RATE project, which, by the way, RATE stands for Radioisotopes and the Age of the Earth. And there was a, a popular-level book and DVD, mm-hmm. Thousands, Not Billions, that was, re- that was produced uh, to kind of popularize some of those results. And I think a lot of us were impressed by the idea that these dating methods don't agree. Yeah. And then, of course, you point out they don't agree in a particular way, yeah. which is interesting. It's not that they're just randomly giving us inflated numbers, but that there is a discernible order in which you can mm. some methods give you older dates and, and they all give very old dates yeah but some are older than others and there seems to be some systematic difference going on there and that's mm. that's really intriguing but of course it was only a few examples it was a very sure. small uh, number and it's not really been repeated that study has not been repeated at least not at a large scale by mm-hmm. creationists since the rate project sure so this might be the first time creationists have really taken up this problem again mm-hmm. because the rate project is getting up there it's been around for a while now yeah. and and uh th- there are still questions to be answered yeah that's right so i was kind of intrigued by a footnote that actually appeared in dr kurt wise's book faith form and time that was published back in 2002 where he was talking about this phenomenon of discordance disagreement between radioisotope ages and he referenced a national geochronological database that has been produced by the United States Geological Survey. So basically, this was a database of thousands of rock units from across North America. And he was saying in this footnote, you know, you can sort of see 
disagreement in the radioisotope dates in this database. And I thought, well, that's intriguing. We should take a closer look at that. So that was basically what we did. It was actually two students, two students that Dr. John Whitmore pointed me to. One was a geology student, one was a computer science major. And these two students worked together. They really did the hard work. You know, I kind of helped us give them the idea for the project and supervised it and gave them advice. But really, the project was theirs. They did Mm. the hard work. They presented at the conference. So Mm. they they should get the credit for this. They took this database. There are 18,500 records. So, you know, the rate group, we're looking at 10 rock units. This database has got 18,500 records and 29,000 radioisotope dates in it. So what they did was that they developed a kind of a metric that they could use to examine the frequency of concordance or discordance, in other words, agreement Mm -hmm. or disagreement between radioisotope dates. And they were able to then sort of compare one radioisotope method to another. They were able to look at concordance within particular methods. They were able to look at what the concordance was like if you were able to compare, say, two methods to one another or three or more methods. So they did various types of analyses and uh, some of their results were quite interesting. So maybe we we can talk about some of that. Yeah, uh, (laughs) I was really impressed. Uh, You know, there was some complicated computer science going on just in that project. And so, for example... When we talk about these dates agreeing, Mm -hmm. we don't just mean they had the same number. Right. Because when scientists do, when they date a sample, they don't get back just a number. They'll get back a range. Sure. Uh, So kind of plus or minus some number of thousands, millions of years. And so what they were looking for, as I understood the, the paper, is the date was concordant as long as the error bars matched up. So as long as... It could have overlapped, even if it wasn't the same number, but the margin of error was such that they could have overlapped. That counted as agreement. Yes. And in fact, they were quite generous in the assumptions. So what they did was, you're you're absolutely right, they looked at whether the uncertainty ranges, the error bars, if you like, for two dates overlapped with one another. And if they overlapped, then they regarded that as concordant. If they didn't overlap, if there was no overlap, that was discordant. Now, there were a lot of dates where uncertainty ranges were not actually reported in the database. What they did then was they said, well, if the two dates agree within plus or minus 10% of the the Mm -hmm. overall age, then we'll say that's good enough and we'll call that concordant. That was quite generous because the average error uncertainties in the database were actually about 6%. so, So they made quite a generous assumption. Using that, they were able then to sort of apply this sort of metric and study concordance and discordance. And what they found, just to give you the kind of bottom line, what did they find? The more radioisotope methods that are used on any particular rock unit, the greater the amount of discordance that you find. Hmm. So if you're only comparing two dates, yeah, sure, they, they might be concordant or discordant. But if you're comparing three different methods or four different methods or whatever essentially the amount of discordance increases so there's mm. more and more disagreement the more dates you apply to the to, to these samples and they also found a kind of systematic trend again very similar to the trend that was found by the rate group there was this pecking order of dates mm-hmm. where certain methods were consistently giving older ages than, than others and some were giving consistently younger ages you know So it's very interesting that even in this big database, which was not compiled with the intention of testing these kinds of ideas, you can still see something similar going on in in Mm. the data. 
So those are kind of probably the takeaways. The more dates that you apply to rocks, the more discordance you see. And there does really seem to be some sort of systematic trend going on. That really is fascinating. But it shows, I think, a number of things. But the results from the rate project, they were not a fluke. It wasn't right. just uh, creationists uh, doing something sneaky. Mm-hmm. What rate found does appear to be a real pattern and a real problem yeah. uh, when it comes to the agreement between various radiometric dates. There does mm-hmm. seem to be an issue. And like you said, this database isn't developed for that purpose. So it's not the kind of question that any of the uh, geologists over at the USGS, yeah. they're probably not thinking about this problem very much. But it's there. Yeah. It's in the data. It's not an illusion and not something that, and, and as you said earlier, um, in many ways, the study authors, the students mm-hmm. and, and yourself were quite generous in giving mm-hmm. lots of room for these dates to line up if they did. And yet we still see a striking amount of disagreement, of discordance, yeah. especially as you said, when we begin to apply multiple dates and compare them. Yeah, that's absolutely right. One of the things that we did find as we sort of studied this database is that the database itself is a little bit messy. Mm -hmm. I guess lots of different people have contributed to this database and sort of inputted data into it. And so sometimes there was a lack of consistency in how data was being reported. Sometimes people were putting data into the wrong columns in the database. There were also some errors, things that seemed to be clearly errors. And I think one of the things we'd like to do to sort of take this study forward is, and it's going to be a lot of hard work, but mm-hmm. we, we need to kind of go through the database and tidy it up. There is a newer version of the database, funnily enough, that it came out while we were kind of working on this study. In fact, as we completed it, really. So that was January this year. I'm not sure that that new version has fixed all of the problems that we saw. But we'd like to go through manually curate the database. That's going to be a lot of hard work because you've got 18,500 yes. <laughs> records and 29,000 dates. But we need to kind of iron out those problems. And then we can sort of rerun the analysis and see whether any of that changes our basic conclusions. I suspect it won't, but mm-hmm. you know we need to check that. The other thing is that there were a lot of things that we didn't do. And I think there's scope you know, to use this big database to explore other questions. So Mm. we could look at different types of age determinations. There are things called model ages. There are things called isochron Mm -hmm. ages, and you can have mineral isochrons or whole rock isochrons. There are things called discordia plots. We didn't kind of distinguish between those. And I think it would be interesting to see whether you get different dates Mm -hmm. on the same samples, depending on the kind of age determination you do. Mm. So that's one thing we could do. We could also look at different minerals. The database tells us what minerals are being dated in the rock. Do different minerals give different dates for the same rock? And if so, why? Can we come up with an explanation for that? So there are all kinds of things, I think, that we could do. There's also a very similar database that we're now sort of aware of, which gives radioisotope dates for Australia. Mm-hmm. So maybe we could do a study of the Australian database and do something similar there. Again, this was very much a preliminary study. There's a lot more that could be done. I'm hoping I can recruit some more students to to work on it and to take it forward. Because again, I think it's it's one of these things that could answer a lot of questions for us and could really help to build on what the rate group did. Absolutely. You know, it reminds me of the paper that we talked about last month about testing the order in the fossil record. Because as you look at this data and you look at it and you ask different questions, 
you're able to show not only a problem for the conventional evolutionary, the old earth interpretation of the data, that there is discordance, that there is disagreement, and that it is systematic. Mm. Uh, so not only can you show a problem for the conventional secular view, you are also now able to potentially answer questions that a creationist might have sure. to improve or even in some cases build our own model. If uh, radiometric decay was accelerated, how did that happen? When did mm-hmm. that happen? There's a lot of questions that you know creationists would like to have answered about that that are only questions that a creationist would ask. Right. We're not going to get any help from the secular world answering those sorts of questions, but we are able to sort of glean from the data that they have collected and bring some different different glasses to it and, yeah. and get some really tantalizing and exciting results. Yeah, I think that's really exciting. And this is one of the great advantages to us of having these big databases out there that we can use them to explore all kinds of interesting questions that nobody else is asking. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as creationists, we can ask those questions. Yeah, absolutely. And there were a number of talks at the ICC that were similar to this, <laughs> looking at the paleobiology database, which is this a free database of fossil data, where fossils are found, what layer they're in, and so forth. There were talks on sandstone, crossbed, dips, and that was using uh, large databases as well. There were a lot of these talks along this line of, of really using data, using large collections of evidence, and starting to apply rigorous methods from a creationist perspective. It was really exciting for me. That was only my second ICC but even just the difference from the previous one to this one was remarkable that there really is a, a lot of advancement happening in yeah. the creation science community. I always find when I come away from a conference like ICC, you kind of come away buzzing with lots of mm-hmm. new ideas and lots of new thoughts. And you think, I've written this chapter or whatever. I need to rewrite that because there's <laughs> now all this new information that's kind of come out. And it's really exciting. That's science in action. And uh, yeah, I just find these conferences so stimulating and encouraging. And it's great to see the the work's going on and see a new generation taking it up too. I had a great time there as well, both hanging out with you and with others Mm -hmm. at the conference. And definitely would encourage our listeners to check out the ICC website. It is internationalconferenceoncreationism.com. We'll put that link in the show notes. And uh, there won't be another one for another four to five years. But there are other conferences uh, on a smaller scale where you can uh, hear creation research being presented and really being developed. And Mm -hmm. uh, it really is an exciting community to to be a part of. And so do encourage our listeners, especially those who might be either students or interested in science. This is where you want to go, uh, these types of events Mm -hmm. and gatherings, to really see how the sausage is made, uh, as we sometimes say. It really is an exciting and a stimulating thing, uh, like you said. absolutely. Okay. Well, Paul, this has been a a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for giving us the time. Thank you for the work that you and, of course, your colleagues, your students and so forth put into the presentations at the ICC. And uh, next month, we'll be talking with uh, one of your colleagues, Stephen Lloyd, Dr. Stephen Lloyd, also from Biblical Creation Trust. So we look forward to that conversation. And uh, any other final words you want to leave us with, Paul, before we hand it off to Marv? Well, if you want to check out Biblical Creation Trust, uh, you can look us up online. Uh, Our website is biblicalcreationtrust.org, and you can look us up on social media. We're on Facebook and YouTube and so on. And I'm sure you'll have a a great time with Stephen Lloyd. He's got some very interesting things to share with you. So, uh, yeah, yeah, look forward to that. Yeah, we're looking forward to it as well. Well, thank you so much, Paul. Marv, back to you. 
Thank you, Zach and Paul. That was really fascinating. Next time, Zach will interview Paul's colleague, pastor and theologian Stephen Lloyd, about the biblical and theological implication of Noah's flood and the age of the earth. Well, that's a wrap for this month. If you have any questions or comments, feedback, or anything else for us at the podcast, send them to podcast at missouricreation.com. We'd love to hear from you. And please remember to subscribe and rate our podcast on whatever platform you choose to listen to. You can find all of our episodes and subscription options at our website, missouricreation.com slash podcast. Thank you again for being here. I'm Marv Schaefer, and I'd like to leave you with this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Catch you next time.